The first is obviously it's expensive. If you're gonna mix methods and you're also gonna build new data sets and you don't even know the answer yet, right? Then you know you could you, it's hundreds of thousands of pounds, and like you say, in the end, you can just get the null the null hypothesis. You know? Welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast. I'm Michael Labelle. Here we speak to the people building a clean energy system by 2050. Today we speak with Benjamin Silva-Cool, who is Professor of Energy Policy at the University of Sussex and Professor of Business and Social Sciences at our host university. He is the former director of the Center on Innovation and Energy Demand. The list of Benjamin's activities are extensive. This includes being one of the founders and editor-in-chief for the international peer-reviewed journal Energy Research and Social Science. He is also author of more than 300 refereed articles, book chapters, and reports, and the author, co-author, editor, or co-editor of 18 books on energy and climate change topics. I took that all from his profile pages. But also, not to cut the list short, Benjamin is a lead author to the next Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, Sixth Assessment Report on Mitigation and Development Pathways in the Near to Mid-Term. The purpose to have Benjamin on this podcast was to discuss the tremendous work that came out of the Center on Innovation Energy Demand. We begin our talk about how Benjamin didn't want to get involved in energy, but Professor Richard Hurst kidnapped him into the field, but only after Benjamin's car was broken into and all of his research stolen. And here I have to interject by saying that Hirsch's book Power Loss was also very influential on my own PhD research on the role of regulation and technologies. Furthermore, Benjamin goes into detail about the benefits and challenges of scholarly, multidisciplinary collaboration and ongoing training for researchers. I think listeners will find our discussion on energy justice engaging for why humanizing the energy transition through a justice lens is essential to balance out strong technological narratives. We delve into the idea of visions of the energy transition and why ideographs are powerful ways to frame events and can shape our understanding of the world. For me, a key takeaway is the importance of the social sciences play in understanding how transitions happen and the multitude of ways we can study and identify the work that needs to be done to build a sustainable energy system. Thank you for joining this episode of the My Energy 2050 podcast. If you find this episode useful, please send it forward on social media, highlighting the part you found most useful. Benjamin Sovacool, I want to welcome you to the My Energy 2050 podcast. Thank you. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Great. Uh, we, we have met in the past. Yeah, uh, we were just uh, talking before we began talking here on the recorded conversation about the last conference we were at, and uh, which was about four years ago. And there's there's been quite a lot of change even uh, over this period of time. And the reason I wanted to have you on today was discuss uh, the activities of the Center on Innovation and Energy Demand. Um, yeah, if, you, if you want to make it really easy on yourself, Michael, you can just call it SEED or SEED. SEED. We went by both somehow. But yes, okay. <laughs> SEED or SEED will make it C-I-E-D a little easier. Did it depend on where, which, peop- which country people came from? Yeah, and I also just think we had 
almost 40 people involved in the center. And so a center that big, people just call it different things. Wow. Okay. Uh, and maybe maybe you, first uh, we could backtrack a bit. And I, I just want to ask you your about your interest in energy and how that began. And then move on to the center's activities, which are prolific and, and the output uh, in just preparation for today. I could see that. So what, what prompted you first to personally get involved in the energy sector and to examine energy from, from this legal and I would say a very uh, academic way in the energy transition? Yeah, I don't think many people know that my involvement in energy and climate was entirely accidental and almost coerced. And by that, I mean I was doing a PhD at Virginia Tech in the United States. Uh, the full name is the Virginia Polytechnic Institute and State University, but we just go by Virginia Tech. And uh, that science technology studies department is really interesting because they, they study in an interdisciplinary way everything from science policy to the philosophy of science to the history of technology to very specific sectors like biotech right, or nuclear weapons. And I was actually doing a project on military technology looking at technology transfers between the U.S. and Israel, especially missile defense, and at the time, unmanned aerial vehicles, which we now call drones. And uh, there was a professor there who liked you know, what I was doing, but thought that it would be really good on a project he had funded by the National Science Foundation. His name was Richard Hirsch. And he requested that I be his graduate student. In the U.S. model, uh, usually if you're lucky enough, you get your tuition waived and you work 20 hours a week as either a GTA or a GRA. GTA is a teaching assistant, a GRA is a graduate research assistant. And my GRA ship at the time was actually focused on the Middle East. Richard Hirsch, who is leading this NSF project, said, I want Benjamin for my project, which was all about energy. And I actually said, no, I don't want to tell your project. Energy seems really boring. Right, I don't want to examine oil and whatever, all that old stuff, yeah. Yeah, and even his, his project too at the time, I mean, it sounded odd. It was on distributed generation and the future of uh, electricity security in the United States. And at the time it was like, distributed, what? You know, it doesn't make any sense. So I said no, Richard really, really appealed, and then he asked the head of the department to assign me to the grant. <laughs> you were kicking and screaming into this project. Um, and I, I met with Richard, and he had me read a few books. One of them was a book by Tom Caston about combined heat and power uh, and the kind of benefits of more small decentralized energy resources. And that was it. After reading that book, I was amazed, for instance, that power plants in the U.S. wasted two-thirds of the energy content of their fuel. As you go from the, you know, the fuel efficiency of a unit of coal, you get only about a third energy out of it by the time it goes through a power plant. And all these other benefits too, security, community, democracy, ownership. Uh, and so I got really excited in it. And I still tried to do the military technology project. And I had a small doctoral dissertation improvement grant to still go to Israel and do original research there. Mm -hmm. But in a tragic turn of events, uh, I, uh, everything was stolen from my car as I was driving in Israel. So I lost all of my data. And at that point, Richard was just like Benjamin. <laughs> so yeah, I, I converted that rest of that project to look at uh, distributed generation, energy efficiency, and small-scale renewables in the U.S. using a socio-technical lens. Richard was in STS and the history of technology mm -hmm. and had done a lot of work on large technical systems, drawing from Thomas Hughes. 
Yes, yes. Uh, um, but he also mm -hmm. taught the history of technology class, which got into things like actor network theory or social construction of technology. So he was really actually a perfectly suited advisor. So he and, became my co-chair, and my other co-chair was a sociologist called Daniel Breslau, and they both pushed me into energy. Mm -hmm. and, and because, I mean, energy, uh, I would say maybe what the study of energy now isn't, it's not, I mean, from my perspective as a geographer, it would be more the geological kind of understanding of it and distribution of resources. But if we talk about the energy transition, it's so high tech in a sense that this background and this, this focus on technology actually set you up quite well in, in pursuing this energy transition topic. Yeah, and we were studying it before it was cool. In other words, like when we started the project, this is the early 2000s, there was no energy crisis. I mean, you had the 2000-2001 electricity crisis in California that was seen as an anomaly. But the, there weren't really these huge concerns like there are now about energy security, energy independence, climate change. We knew it was real but didn't take it too seriously. You know, the U.S. didn't even have – it still doesn't have um, a national carbon tax. And at that time, there weren't even any, any pilot – uh, emissions trading schemes in the U.S. So it was kind of before all of that happening to look at the benefits of smaller scale um, energy systems. And it was really fortuitous because in my Ph.D., I only talked about barriers. It's like the, the kind of, and it was kind of like you said, Michael, the dominant answer was that the U.S. isn't adopting renewables for technical reasons. And my argument was that's not true. In fact, if we were to price externalities properly, uh, they, these smaller scale options would be competitive. And if you look at other places like Denmark and Germany, they are adopting them. So there's got to be something else going on here that isn't related to the technology. And so the answer that I gave was it's a more complicated socio-technical phenomenon that is about politics, behavior, culture, economics, that fuses together as part of a system. And anyone that doesn't look at the whole system gets an incomplete picture. Right. And, and then... Uh, so I'll just interrupt maybe at that time period a little bit later on then the war with Iraq and these geopolitical events really heated up even even later on with Russia which meant that you know what is the true cost of oil or and then the environmental issues as well what is the true cost of coal became much more pressing oh yeah absolutely and, and there was um, work that we actually we cited in the project by David Green who actually calculated the costs of U.S. oil dependence. And this isn't the cost of oil. This is like the costs of us depending on oil in terms of macroeconomic shocks, military protection, etc. And it was like greater than the costs of all wars fought by the U.S., including the Iraq War. And that's just the cost of our dependence. So it's like trillions and trillions of dollars just because we're dependent on one fuel in one sector is, is quite amazing. Right. And so you have this uh, big push. I mean, there's the geopolitical cost, the economic cost to the American economy. And then the we, we could even say at this time period, too, the technology became much more refined. Right. Uh, and, and a greater uh, emphasis in, in Europe and China to drive down the cost. Maybe you could bring that. Uh, we could tie it in with seed. <laughs> did, I, uh, did I say it right? Seed. Well, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and the activities there. Mm hmm. So, yeah, so I mean, throughout, so that was my first kind of big energy project. And then I took the next project and the next project and the next project, still looked at really interesting issues, but always in terms of energy supply. So I went to Singapore to see if the barriers to renewables were the same in places like Southeast Asia. We did projects looking at energy development and access. So how do you supply energy in some of the most impoverished regions of the world, um, including off-grid systems, right? 
And mm -hmm. all of these projects, quite intuitively, are about energy infrastructure, energy supply, energy services. Energy demand was there, but kind of latent, right? Or it was part of the system, but not the focal point of the system. It's just one of many pieces. Mm -hmm. You know, like if you take a Hughesian approach, you've got like six or seven little bubbles, and consumers are one of the bubbles. <laughs> so is financing, so is policy, so is institutional support, so is the distribution network, so is supply, right? So um, cons consumption doesn't play a very big role in a lot of those frameworks. And that is precisely where CED came into the picture. And I have to really applaud the UK because they funded six of these national centers of excellence. So maybe uh, maybe you could you could um, describe a bit of the history of the funding and why originally the six centers were, were set up. And and uh, CIED is uh, quite quite diverse. Um, it's a I'll let you describe uh, the different universities that are working together within it. So. Here in the UK, we have a variety of research councils. I know the US does as well, but the US tends to be more consolidated within the NSF. In the, in the UK, at least, if you're not talking European Commission money, which is a different type, basically you've got um, seven research councils by discipline, from arts and humanities to the natural environment to economic and social stuff. And so this program was a joint program between two of them. It's the ESRC, the Economic and Social Research Council, and EPSRC, which is the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council. And they basically put in about 20 to 30 million pounds into a competitive bid and said, this is called the Energy Use, Energy Demand Centers of Excellence. And the idea was to get interdisciplinary proposals that, again, explored everything we know about the demand perspective. And its goal, like the overarching goal, was very pragmatic. How do we reduce the UK's energy demand? And many of the centers took that on board with issues like there was a center on food, there was a center on refrigeration, there was a center on heat, things like that. There were some social science centers, though, like ours, that kind of weren't as technical and they weren't as, you know, they more problematized it. They kind of asked, well, should we be reducing energy demand? If we reduce energy demand, what are the impacts? How do we better understand behavior, consumption, practices of energy? Uh, but it was really neat that. There were six of these centers, all of them interdisciplinary, and I think there were two that were very far on the spectrum of social sciences. There was us, CED, we were kind of innovation, dynamics, transitions, and policy mixes. And there was Demand, which was led by Lancaster, Elizabeth Shove. Uh, and Demand was much more about practices using anthropology, ethnography, and sociology. So those two were quite neat, and I think both of us did some very cutting edge um, projects. A lot of the centers had many, many more partners than CIED did. I think mm -hmm. Demand had the most. Demand might have had up to 20 different partners, but CIED was a bit different. We only had three. So CIED had, although we had lots of projects and lots of researchers, it was just the University of Sussex, uh, University of Oxford, and University of Manchester. But there's still quite a lot of research <laughs> if you look at the page. Sorry. Uh, yes. So, uh, but how many how many researchers were involved overall? So the centers, as you can imagine, all had different budgets. And what's quite interesting is CIED had one of the smallest budgets of the pack. But it's also because we were just doing social science. So many of the other centers were developing prototypes or using labs, right? And we didn't have any of that. So we kind of could make the money go a little bit further. But in the end, we had some people come in and out of the center. Uh, I think we had up to almost 40 people who were involved. If you include 
our admin staff, our kind of center manager and all of that. Of that 40, I think we had about 28 full-time researchers. And it did run for five years. Mm -hmm. um, and I should also say at this point, too, the center had uh, was pretty well designed. It had three co-directors. I was the director, but we had um, – and there were three themes of the center. So the idea was that each of the co-directors took a theme, and the themes were emergence, diffusion, and impact. Mm -hmm. Emergence was meant to be the kind of very new cutting edge technologies that we know very little about when the center started automated mobility, you know, small scale, maybe prosuming energy storage. Um, and that was led by Tim Schwarnen, mostly looking at automated mobility for freight at Oxford. Frank Hughes led our work on diffusion. This was kind of how do you how do we understand dynamics of diffusion and adoption of new technologies? How do we understand barriers? How do we understand socio-technical systems dimensions? That was led by Frank Hills at Manchester. And then Steve Sorrell here at Sussex led impacts, which was almost, I have to confess, a kind of catch-all for whatever didn't fit in emergence and diffusion. But it really ended up being unintended consequences justice impacts and um, energy rebounds with Steve leading a lot of the rebounds work and then me leading a lot of the justice work. By, by looking at the output from the, the center, what I really liked was, and maybe this was designed this way, was not so much on, say, the generation, right? Because if we think about this energy transition, uh, then as you mentioned very early on in the interview now, uh, this this demand side and here the center is really focused on this demand side or consumption side of the energy sector how does how does that um, give you a unique perspective on the energy transition when you're focusing more much more on what's occurring in the consumption realm rather than on the generation realm if, if I can make those distinctions yeah I mean I think you can probably and let me also say that we even though we were focused on demand or end use or practices or consumption because we took a socio-technical perspective and we also at times took a whole systems perspective, supply still was there sometimes, mm -hmm. right? Like if you're talking about EVs, we're still talking about electricity charging is one of those important parts about the uptake or heat pumps, right? Or zero carbon homes. Then the gas grid matters a lot. So it's there, but you're right. It's not really a focal point. And I think one way of organizing the center was, of course, the three themes. But another way would kind of be the areas that we tried to be novel. And I think the three ways in which SEED's work tried to get better at understanding demand go into conceptual, empirical, and methodological domains. So conceptually, we did look at a variety of heuristics, like the multi-level perspective, which talks about niches and regimes. We did a little bit of work on social practice theory, domestication. Uh, we did other theoretical work on kind of policy, as well as the role of users in policy and innovation. Are they static? Are they active? Are they passive? Can users be, be sources of innovation? What about the role of intermediaries? How do they operate, these people between consumers and producers? There's a whole kind of conceptual part of the project with Frank Hells really leading some cutting edge work on notions of whole systems transitions and kind of destabilization of regimes. The kind of second area would be really the kind of methodological stuff. And here it's mostly Steve Sorrell and Tim Schwarnen. I mean, Steve Sorrell was leading new methods of collecting data, especially econometric data, uh, really complicated decomposition analysis and hierarchical regression analysis to kind of pinpoint how much has demand impacted changes 
in energy patterns. What about the role of agents? What, how do they behave, right, in, in very mm-hmm. you know, non-rational ways? How do they have rebound effects that are direct and indirect? Um, and we also had Tim Schwarnen, who's a geographer, doing more innovative stuff with kind of uh, time series geography. Um, and, and how these types of spatial concepts might uh, create new methods of collecting data about things like EV adoption. And then finally, for me, the kind of area that I really contributed a lot to was the empirical results. These are more the pragmatic policy relevant results, where we just tried to we generated new data sets and tried to answer questions like the UK smart meter transition, who's vulnerable, or uh, EV adoption. Um, Will it only be high-income people? What are some of the justice issues? Or energy service contracts, um, what are some of the transaction costs? Who might lose out as we shift to more energy service contracts? So those types of kind of empirical questions were more designed to help policy. So you can see kind of a tripartite of results, those helping build concepts, those creating new methods of data collection, and then those generating empirical data to answer policy relevant. It's almost like a unique period of time because, I mean, uh, think about even your career, uh, my career, other other people's careers where we did our PhDs or finished them around the early 2000s. And here here you're bringing together these concepts, new, new, new concepts, new methods, and new policy impacts, the, the results, uh, even bringing an agency of, of people and bringing it in, in a more unified manner, overlapping manner. Uh, how, how can, can you de- my, I have to find my question here. <laughs> I'm all excited. But uh, can you describe maybe the, the impact then that the center has by bringing together all these researchers to examine, you know, a wide range of topics, but in 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 a semi-coherent manner. Yeah, I mean, it. I have to, so. I think you have interdisciplinarity that kind of happened at three levels, and I'll try to answer this quickly. So the first level is obviously the projects within CIED. People proposed projects. The three research co-directors and the director evaluated the projects, and we approved almost all of them. Now, some of those projects were lone wolves. They were just one person doing one thing by themselves, a few. Um, But most of those projects were designed to be interdisciplinary already. So already you have kind of multiple people built into each project. In fact, I think only two projects were just lone wolves. All the others had at least two disciplines involved and many more. Um, So that's the kind of first level is project level interdisciplinarity. The second way in which we kind of had interdisciplinarity um, was when we would sit and projects would synergize. And so this, I think, is one of the papers that you mentioned about the visions paper. And we had another paper on intermediaries. We kept seeing things come up across different projects. Um, And so we had these kind of long meetings where we decided, I think we had up to 21 options for cross-cutting papers that would involve at least two projects. And we only had time to write two because there weren't in the proposal. And the two we ended up writing, yeah, involved like multiple projects. We had this paper on intermediaries, which picked up some of Donal's work. He was looking at um, uh, new energy service models for delivering retrofits. We picked up the work on EVs in Norway. We picked up um, Mari's work on heat pumps. We picked up, um, let's see, we had intermediaries on smart meters. So it was kind of a five projects meshed together. What do we know about intermediaries? And then you've seen the visions paper, which Mm -hmm. is even more visions cutting across our projects on divestment, automated vehicles, electric vehicles, um, you know, uh, smart meters, uh, um, nuclear power, which was Kirsten Jenkins doing a little bit of work there from her PhD, and hydrogen fuel cells. So again, that's the kind of second layer is where projects had similar results. We mesh them together 
and tried to do a synthetic output. And then the final one was kind of at the level of the directors. And I wish we could have done this with more people at CED, but there is a lag. Like when you get large authoring teams, I've kind of found two to five is kind of a sweet spot. But anything plus five, just really, unless if you want everyone to meaningfully contribute, really gets difficult. So we did these highly synthetic outputs that were just kind of meta projects where it was just kind of the co-directors drawing from five years of data and experience in the center. And it was kind of a neat process where we just sat down and we're like, okay, Tim, you've got these, you know, 10 projects you've been involved with. What's the most interesting thing you found? Frank, what's the most interesting thing you found? Steve, what's the most interesting thing you found? Then we wrote papers. We got one into science and one into Juul just about those findings. Those are kind of like interdisciplinarity that's even above all of the projects. And, and, and all it, three of those, yeah, helped create interdisciplinary collaborations. But but it took you year, uh, in one sense, it took you years to get to that point, right? I mean, everyone individually working, but you're also working together uh, over a long period of time to bring those results out. Yes, and and so and there's a downside and a plus side. So well, there's actually two downsides. The first downside is you're absolutely right. The projects had to finish before we could then do the cross-cutting papers. And the cross-cutting papers had to be more or less conceived before we could even go up to the meta kind of theoretical papers. And the other thing that was difficult is, obviously, we're doing the synergizing at the end, post-hoc. Whereas in reality, right, it would have been really good to anticipate it and design the projects to be synergized. So what it meant we had to do, and we were quite worried about this in peer review, is we're using completely different methods, completely different timeframes, completely different approaches in some of these papers, and we mesh it together. The visions paper, right? The visions paper is using visions from interviews, content analysis, literature reviews, and expert interviews, and scenarios. So it's like there's no single method. If we had designed the paper from the start, we would have, of course, designed it to have maybe just one unifying method. So that was quite a challenge, and I guess we got lucky that the peer reviewers didn't hit us more on disaggregated methods and lack of uniformity. Okay, so you you brought it. You brought it up, a peer review of the Visions article. So I suggest everyone, um, of course, will have a link to it. Go and read it because it's really a unique article, I think, just because, um, yeah, I mean, A, it, it passed peer review process, not just because of that, but it's a really unique paper because of all these different visions and outcomes and, and scenarios. And I, I don't want to call it a, a, a messy paper, but in a sense, it's this very creative paper that brings together, yeah, at this meta uh, an analysis level, at a meta level, but also, um, how, how do I describe it? it? I mean, it's very well constructed. So it, it has the structure and it has the diagrams are very clear. So it is understandable and, and, and it's good in that sense. But I think it's such a unique paper because it's bringing in so much of, of already published work and already refined work that you were able to distill it down uh, very, very well, basically. Thank you, Michael. And yes, it is absolutely a messy paper. It's just trying to make sense of messy data. Um, so, and, and that's precisely why we chose a journal like Social Studies of Science, because they do permit longer articles. There are not many journals that would even permit an article that long. And you have probably only read the article. There's also an appendix, which I think is another five or 6,000 words that I talks about, it. Yeah, <laughs> it talks about uh, the discursive elements of all of the 38 visions that we found. So. Um, but yeah, that's precisely, you can only do that sort of meta work, right? If you have a large number of cases or, or data. 
Yes, and maybe maybe I can move move us along a little bit on on looking at these, for example, the scenarios or meta scenarios and the usefulness of those because maybe bring it to our our current time period of a pandemic and how life is changing or and maybe in one sense maybe not changing, but but how. How, how and there's many when we talk about the energy sector and energy transitions. There's always new kind of scenarios coming out by uh, by a range of think tanks or academics. And so scenarios are and even um, I, I really like the area of narratives, but we'll stick maybe with scenarios as a general term uh, to to show people what can happen, right? If if things do not change, but but what happens though in a time period? What makes those scenarios useful when we can't really predict? What's going to happen in the future? Why why are scenarios uh, necessary or useful even? Well, I don't think. I mean, the paper is more about visions than scenarios, and there is a subtle difference there. And there's also a difference between a discourse and narrative and all of that. And I won't go into the semantics of that, but rhetorical scholars take it all very seriously. We intentionally did keep it big, right? Because I think, in a way, that paper it does. It's it's describing not only visions but also imaginary storylines, narratives, discourses, rhetoric, all of that together. And we did cast a kind of very wide net. But I think one of the three thoughts, the kind of deeper thoughts from the paper, the first is that I do suspect that many of the visions that we identify exist independent of energy technologies. So a lot of these visions end up being really about democracy versus authoritarianism or security versus or good versus evil. So there's a commonality to many of these these visions. I would suspect they're equally prevalent around other technological systems like food, crops, you know, um, mobility, et cetera, agriculture. Uh, the second thing is that we mentioned that they, and you mentioned this a little bit too, we draw from Prop, who is a kind of folk anthropologist, to talk about the kind of common elements of the visions, that they do start to have very common actors, very common kind of rhetorical tropes, very common forms of appearance or attributive elements. And we have a little typology in the paper that talks about, you know, how it envisions passive versus active people, victims versus villains, right? But also good versus evil, beneficiaries, you know, heroes, as well as those who are just impacted. And I think those are very common elements that happen anytime humans tell stories. And I think this is also the big benefit of why stories matter because they make sense of complex phenomena and they are how most humans communicate. We've been telling stories as a species for thousands and thousands of years. And so in a way, a story or a vision is a much more compelling way to communicate to someone about energy than maybe a model or maybe a scenario. And the final thing we do, and we mentioned this and it's not my idea, we draw from this notion of an ideograph. Now an ideograph is kind of getting at what you hinted, Michael. It's like a meta story. It's like a common story that cuts across um, technology. It, it comes from a term by McGee, who's really talking about when rhetoric meets power or ideology. That's why it's called an ideograph. And so a really good example of a very strong ideograph would be the Cold War and the kind of Reagan's evil empire, right? His ability to frame the Soviet Union as this kind of vicious, cannot be stopped, must be resisted, must be fought. Communism is a huge threat to the world. We've got to fight it. Um, that is a very good example of an ideograph that ties into notions of security, fear, democracy, capitalism, and progress. And so these ideographs are very powerful. They're kind of universal. And I think the paper, we don't do this actively, but there's 
we give you a way to identify the ideographs so you can help problematize them. We also give you a way to use them. So if you are an advocate and you are trying to sell a low-carbon transition, one of the lessons is use more ideographs. Connect it to things like progress or gender or security or freedom and liberty. Because these are kind of meta-rhetorical techniques that have universal appeal. And I think that is exactly where the commonalities with COVID become very apparent because you can now talk about COVID and how it impacts humanity through innovation, fear, you know, centralization, all these other themes that are equally salient with energy transitions. But isn't, isn't this one of the uh, ways to, maybe I provide the definition that you have in your, uh, I have it right here, uh, in, in one of the di- diagrams, a term of ideograph, a term of cultural and political collective collective commitment that embraces historical norms sufficiently to guide subsequent discourse. And it's maybe this historical norms. I mean, this is almost a way to not just pro- as uh, how you frame it as projecting what can happen in the future in, in a transition or a just transition hitting on certain terms and certain ways of, of life that we want to embrace, like sustainability or uh, recognizing gender. Um, uh, and but but it's also a way for people to hold on to the past, though, isn't it? Like uh, for coal, coal regions and what coal can provide for a community. But so there's this inherent tension by using these ideographs. No, absolutely. And they're meant to be broad. They're meant to be kind of strategically ambiguous so that they are malleable and can be deployed. And one of the things that we tried to do, so when uh, McGee was written when he did ideographs in the Cold War. So his kind of lexicon of ideographs was not very large. And it's picked up a little bit by Hero Van Lente, who's an excellent uh, STS scholar doing work on expectations. And he talks about how progress, technological progress, is like the overarching ideograph in a lot of the visions about technology. And what we do is we kind of find, well, there's more than just those ideographs. We identified 14 ideographs that seem to recur. But many of them have tensions, right? We have kind of liberty and autonomy is one, but so is privacy, and so is security, and those can contradict. And I think this this fits into both the kind of strategic ambiguity of the ideograph, but also something else that we mentioned in the paper. Most of these visions have pairings. They simultaneously are depicting the good, but also the bad, right? So they have heroes, but also villains. They have kind of positive attributes to be attained, like human security or a good environment, but also negative ones to be avoided, like conflict, war, terrorism, Right. I remember one of one of the the um, really compelling quotes we found about smart meters was there was actually people who have said that they think that smart meters create vulnerabilities that are even worse than a nuclear strike. Right. So here is someone using an ideograph of fear and trying to connect it to the fact that this technology opens up the UK in ways that are even worse than nuclear war. Right. And so it's kind of a my goodness. It helps you see, I guess, how scary or how uplifting some of these technologies can be so i guess it also helps connect emotions um, no the the paper's interesting in, in yeah i uh, in the paper on that part it's it's interesting because that is a perspective right people think uh, smart meters on one hand could be really great for all these we could say in a technical sense but on the other hand open to cyber attack and and, and all refrigerators taken offline and, and the cascading effect that could have yeah, and this is also in the paper, some visions are really counter visions to each other. So another example here is the two visions for automated trucking. 
There's one called the Educated Trucker, which is about how automation will usher in a new area of technical expertise for the trucking industry and it will have great high paying jobs. And there's another that's just about mass unemployment. All the truckers lose their lose their jobs. Right. Both visions can't be true, <laughs> but they're there. Uh, and of course, they help reveal what's at stake. They also reveal the tension. And maybe they also reveal, which this is critical, that, that these are iterative moments for the transitions. Like either of those visions could be true, right? Same with divestment. Divestment could create a carbon bubble that collapses economies, or it could create a new sustainable wave of capitalism where we finally reconcile limits to growth with our economies, right? You can't have both of those be true. So I think it's it also points out that, you know, the, our role as active agents could shape either of those visions in the next 20 or 30 years. Mm-hmm. And, and actually, uh, I, I, that's where actually I want to go is our role as active agents, I would say, in the policy process. And now, um, with, kind of with the pandemic and it, it, uh, science, and not just with the pandemic, but even our discussions, and this goes back years, on climate change, the role of scientists and, and scientists in setting in policy making and their influence as well. How do you how do you see the role of scientists? Because I mean, I frame this within a populist kind of discourse. If we look at the United States or populists in Europe, science is is there, yes, but maybe uh, somehow the politicians know better than scientists. Which I, I think there's a bit of an interplay, anyways, uh, regardless. But but. Um, what is the role of a scientist now? I mean, should we be more advocates for, for change or should we just be doing our research and just publishing in journals? I think one of the, so there's, there's, a, there's two issues that kind of come to mind. The first is that when we collected research, while we viewed policy as an important stakeholder in the process, it wasn't the only one, right? We also can have just as much change that comes from civil society groups or social movements like divestment or business models, changing business practices, like our intermediaries case study, um, looking at Sprung, which is a way of doing retrofits in the Netherlands, right? That, that that's, has nothing to do with policy. It's all about the financial community and these kind of these technical building communities coming together to create low carbon homes. Um, so in a way, it's almost like we can sidestep policy because it's so difficult to change policy for a whole variety of reasons. Um, so I think that's that's kind of one hidden thing is when we collected data on a lot of these projects, we never relied only on expert interviews with policymakers. But the other thing is we shouldn't actually forget. So there's a lot of, of, of I guess, ability to change bottom up, whereas I would characterize a lot of policy changes top down. But the second thing I think we found, too, is that policy is still worth engaging with and also at multiple scales. It's not just national policy. You can also change policy at the level of cities, right, at the level of regions, at the level of other other the European Union. Uh, or even at the global scale with groups like the IPCC uh, or the IEA, International Energy Agency. So I guess we kind of do kind of unpack that the role of science should be helping inform a lot of those policies at different scales. And I think the key, the core of what how we designed CED was to be, we had three prongs to our research kind of um, dogma. It was policy relevant. That was one. We wanted to inform policy. But the other two, I think, get at your answer, Michael, of how science should be involved. It was data-driven and mixed methods. So when science should inform policy, it should hopefully not be based on prejudice or bias. And this is tricky because there's a lot of unconscious bias. And in the energy community, we wrote a whole book a few years ago about fact and fiction and energy policy, and we identified the energy evangelists. These are the people who religiously believe there's a certain technology that will solve the problems of the world. 
and even fantastically good scholars get captured by energy evangelism. They promote wind energy or solar energy or nuclear or shale and nothing else. And they come to create an unconscious bias um, that even downgrades information that is you know, antithetical to their perspective. And th- this is the article you come out with the, some axioms or like a checklist for scientists, isn't <laughs> Yeah, that's right. And that checklist includes be reflexive, think about the other side, be transparent, things like that. So I think we want to avoid energy evangelism and having good data-driven research where you don't necessarily know the answer. Uh, you have a research design that's falsifiable and robust and has a high degree of validity is really good. And the other thing is mixed methods, which is both about interdisciplinarity, but also greater triangulation within the methods. So it's not just coming from a survey, which has mm-hmm. issues with state reference techniques. It's a survey plus interviews plus focus groups, or it's naturalistic observation coupled with maybe a model. So you've got really the ability to mix methods expands the scope of your, your kind of research and also makes it more triangulated. So I think those two kind of things, avoid being evangelists, be more reflexive, and collect multiple forms of data and mix that data, uh, I think helps us create more reliable projections for policy. Mm-hmm. I, I think what you just said is so relevant for, for students and even older researchers to, to be focused on, right? Mixed methods and, and not coming in with the answer already. Okay, I know we, we shouldn't do that, but but there's a lot, it's a lot of scariness, <laughs> that's how I'll say it, uh, by going into a topic and not knowing the answer or just keeping things open. You don't know, right? And, and it, it takes a lot of uh, reflexi- reflexivity uh, to, to work through that and not knowing the answer at the beginning and, and asking the, the right question, actually, or, or rephrasing the question as you go through your research. So, yeah, this is the, the research process that's, it's not easy, even the data collection, the processing. Uh, and I think it's important that we express that you don't know the answer at the beginning and maybe you don't want to, and maybe you don't know the answer at the end either. Yeah. Frustratingly. Um, but I will say as much as I'm in favor of this approach to research, there are, there are three really quick downsides that I should mention. The first is obviously it's expensive. If you're going to mix methods and you're also going to build new data sets and you don't even know the answer yet, right then you know you could you, it's hundreds of thousands of pounds and like you say in the end you can just get the null the null hypothesis <laughs> you know oh it had no effect so there is so it, you shouldn't expect phd students right or early career researchers to somehow wondrously have like a million pound research design um, i think the second one too is that you sometimes you need training to mix these methods right you can't just chuck a geographer an ethnographer and a modeler in a paper and expect them to work out. I mean, so, I mean, I think don't feel bad if, if you don't have the skills. I mean, we, we did have summer schools and a lot of our research fellows did actually get trained in things like stats or leadership or ethnographic methods so that they could do this type of interdisciplinary work. In other words, their, their, their degrees didn't necessarily prepare them for this. They had to get extra training, which also comes back to the issue of expense. And the third thing, and this is the most difficult one, Michael, we have probably had a few projects that would have gone forward, but we ended up canceling just because people didn't get along. So there's another hidden element of cooperation, interdisciplinarity. If people don't like each other, it won't work. Um, so you could even have all the training in place and all the skills in place, but just because of personality differences, uh, it doesn't work out. So I guess those are kind of three caveats to this type of interdisciplinary research. It's expensive, it may take new training, and you may have personality clashes. Mm-hmm. Well, we're approaching the end of the interview, so I won't go into personality clashes. <laughs> <laughs> but, 
<laughs> we'll, we'll save that for when we meet in person one day, okay? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so to, to, to bring it around, there, there's, uh, I have two questions uh, sure. to end with, and this really goes to your work with uh, energy justice, and um, it, it also uh, it's relevant for my work, but m- maybe you can describe uh, the role that energy justice plays in the energy transition. This is a completely broad um, question, but I, I want to get to then the second part of the question is what is an energy, uh, what is a just energy transition? And this is really relevant just because the EU now, right, is using a lot of this terminology of justice and, a, and having a just transition mechanism with a lot of money behind it. So could you describe first um, the role that energy justice plays in looking at the energy transition? And how do we know we are actually building a just transition? Yeah, uh, so um, the first one is not actually so hard. Uh, so the first one is really, we, we did a piece, part of CIED, that really tried to explicate the, the what, why we needed justice. And it's really because a lot of the tools we use in the academy, like the multi-level perspective or socio-technical transitions theory, or even actor network theory or SCOT, social construction of technology, are meant to be descriptive. They're analytical tools that describe. But when a lot of researchers talk about how to do them, they even say, don't take sides, don't be an advocate, don't judge. If you're studying nuclear power, don't say it's good or bad. Just tell us about the dynamics of innovation. Um, avoid being non-objective, be dispassionate. And I think energy justice is kind of meant to critique that and say, bollocks, no, there are technologies that can really harm people and there are technologies that can be very democratic. And so in a way, energy justice is about humanizing transitions. And that's actually the title of the article that Kirsten, myself and, and Darren did. It's called Humanizing Transitions Through Energy Justice. Make it more human. Tell us about the suffering, the pain, the winners, the losers, the lived experiences, and the ethics of what we're doing. And we also did a really nice uh, sustainability transitions research agenda, which is called an agenda for sustainability transitions research led by about 20 of us. And there's a whole section there about the ethical aspects of transition, things like distribution, things like procedures, things like like justice. And so I think that was essentially in a short nutshell, we wanted to humanize the discussions and also make sure that we talked about ethics. As to what is a just transition, I mean, this, this is, there is a new term called just transition, which uh, intertwines many different notions of both justice as well as labor equality and labor rights. To me, I, I like using a kind of fourfold conceptual take on what a just transition is. So this is, I guess, more energy justice than just transition because the two aren't synonymous. Mm-hmm. But for me, I think a just transition needs to do four things. I think it needs to pay special attention to distribution, so equitable access, equitable costs, equitable distribution of also benefits. I think the second thing is it needs to have fair and transparent and representative procedures and planning. This is the whole due process part of justice. So it's it's been fair, right? It's been well-informed. It's had most stakeholders represented. Everyone has had a voice. It's been democratic. Uh, I think the third area is it really takes appreciation of multi-scalar issues. This is what we sometimes call cosmopolitan justice. So it would Mm -hmm. just be like if you're going to phase out fossil fuel cars in Norway, make sure that those cars don't end up in Africa. Where do they go, right? Make sure you account for the whole life cycle of those systems, the whole systems approach. If you're talking about nuclear power for France, where's the uranium come from? If you're talking about smart meters for the UK, where's the e-waste go? 
from the batteries and the in-home displays. So it's kind of a appreciation for the global implications these can have, so you don't unnecessarily create a decarbonization divide between North and South. And then the final thing is kind of vulnerability and recognition. Very special consideration. So the first three things of justice that I mentioned, distribution, procedures, and kind of global cosmopolitan issues, treat humans as equals, but vulnerable groups may deserve special consideration. They may have such low resilience, or they may have already been so victimized and essentialized, or they have other attributes like disabilities, racism, um, you know, homelessness, mental disease, all these other factors that mean, okay, this is, a, this is an area of care that we have to recognize this community. And so there's a recognition justice kind of says, uh, vulnerable groups deserve special protection and special consideration. And John Rawls even talked about this a little bit in some of his principles, where you kind of start with the worst injustice and move up. So this would kind of be start with the most vulnerable first in your justice approach. And I think all four of those themes may not give you the right answer. They may reveal tensions, but they at least open up the discussion so you get better at understanding how equitable transition is, how fair it is, where its global reach ends, and which vulnerable groups it impacts. Um, so... Uh I don't want to oversimplify it, but it's, it goes back to what you mentioned at the very beginning there, the explanation of humanizing the energy transition and not, not getting so caught up in the, in the, the te technical nature of things and, and how things are going, even a macro view, but, but understanding how humans or how people themselves are just dealing on the every day. And then, then you can classify these actions or their situations within these types of justice framings. Yeah, absolutely. And, and just to finish it up, Michael, in a paper in Applied Energy, Michael Dworkin and I do try to talk about the three things that energy justice can do. One of them is, as you say, an analytical tool to kind of look at values, to kind of look at things that you might otherwise miss to humanize it, especially engineers and scientists who may not be thinking about those things. The second thing is a conceptual tool. So those four streams of justice that I mentioned, distributive, cosmopolitan, procedural, and recognition, aren't usually used together. Many scholars of justice will even only use one or two. So we give you at least a conceptual repertoire to combine all four. And then the third thing is a decision-making tool. It's like a checklist. When you are thinking yourself about investing, you're thinking about a new car, you're thinking about which political party to support. You're thinking about whether to adopt an energy policy. You can use these these themes as checklists to actually better understand the consequences. Mm -hmm. and, and and I want to plug your book that you you also wrote with Dork and and, and who is who is the other third author? Well, we've got many books. That book with Cambridge Press was just me and Michael, but there's okay. another book with Benjamin Jones and Roman Sidortsov. Okay, yeah, the the it was one of the first ones on energy justice. Um, sorry, I should go look <laughs> look at my Zotero. So we we did three we did three books, and it's okay. They all have really ugly covers for some reason. But <laughs> we have energy and ethics, which was just me with Paul Grave. That was case studies. We have um, the energy justice kind of philosophy book, which is with Cambridge University Press, and that's me and Michael Dworkin. And then we have energy security, equality, and justice, which is the book you're mentioning with Rutledge, which is Benjamin Jones and Roman Sidortso. Yes. And the way to see all three books at a high level, the book with Benjamin and Roman is kind of what are the injustices? What's wrong? The book with Michael is what are the philosophical principles? And then the book that I did myself are what are the case studies of where we've used justice in the real world? 
Yeah, and I and I like the books because you're able to go in more detail than than journal articles. So that's <laughs> I, I I know if anyone even reads them anymore. But yeah, <laughs> I I know I know right. Or you get now my thing is write ebooks and you kind of look at a chapter or something like that. But uh, I I think in this area of energy justice, uh, the more I get into it, at least the the more I, I get more out of reading the books rather than just uh, journal articles and looking for specific passages. So I just want to encourage, mainly I'll probably make my students listen to this uh, interview, to, to also read the books and, and remember the books are there uh, to be read in the library physically someday. So, Benjamin, uh, uh, we're, I know we're over our time, but just one last question. What, uh, now that you're no longer the director of the Institute, what, what are you doing and what, what's coming next for you? Yeah, so the, not, thankfully so. We were hoping to get another five years of funding for CIAD. But the research councils still helped us out. So we created a new super center called CREDS, Center for Research, Energy Demand Solutions, still the demand side focus. And they took many of the six centers and put them together into this center. And we're leading two of the themes. One of the themes is digital society. So we're talking about many of the issues with smart meters, smart homes, automated vehicles with new data. And one of them is called FAIR, which is fuel poverty and mobility poverty. That's where our energy justice work is happening. And that's looking at the prevalence of fuel and mobility poverty in Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland, and England. Um, so that's keeping us pretty busy in the next phase of research. And we're right in the middle of it. So, And you can check out the CREDS website, and you'll see about half of the people who were in CIED are in CREDS. Okay, great. So it's, it's great to know that the work continues uh, in this area. Yes, and the champion, this is the I love the UK, they even have what's called the champion of creds. Not a PI, but the champion is Professor Nick Eyre at Oxford, and he's done a fantastic job leading creds. And creds has many of the other themes too. It has a theme on transport, a theme on heat, a theme on buildings. Again, but all using an energy demand focus, and most of the time using socio-technical Great. No, I, I I love the 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 focus on an energy demand. I mean, uh, and one of them is just the funding itself uh, usually goes to energy generation side of things, and a lot of focus is on that. On if you think about the energy transition, but the biggest difference is on the energy demand side, and and changes there. Yeah, so, I would I would say so as well. So, thank you very much. Uh, thank you so much for making the time. Yeah. Have a great day. I will. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the My Energy 2050 podcast. Please follow the My Energy 2050 podcast in iTunes or Stitcher so that you can automatically get updated with each new episode. If you like this episode and feel others can benefit from the information, please share it on social media. You can contact me to provide feedback or suggestions on Twitter at My Energy 2050 or on LinkedIn 